Oh, they're not scared of you. They scared of what you represent to them. Amen. Oh, we represent to them, man, as somebody who needs a haircut. Oh, no. What you represent to them is freedom. What the hell's wrong with freedom, man? That's what it's all about. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's what it's all about, all right. But talking about it and being it, that's two different things. I mean, it's real hard to be free when you are bought and sold in the marketplace. Stephen Stills picked me up in a limo at Columbia, and he drove me to meet David Geffen, and we all listened to this music. I said, this is really good stuff. And then I got back, Stephen Stills took me in the limo, and he took me back to Columbia. And I said, Stephen, this isn't gonna work. They said, what do you mean? Everybody's excited. It's not gonna work because I've never been in a limo before, man. Anybody drives in a limo can't understand my movie. Do you understand what I'm saying? You come around here again, I'm gonna kill you. You know I smoked a lot of grass. Oh, Lord, I popped a lot of pills. I went to Toronto to promote the trip. So I was there on the first day of this big exhibition. Jack Valenti is up on this big table of bigwigs, and he's a new boy in the block. LBJ had just appointed him and just created the thing called the Motion Picture Association of America. And Jack's up there. This is his first public utterance. My friends, you are my friends, and looking right at me. We have to stop making movies about motorcycles, sex, and drugs, and make more movies like Dr. Doolittle. I went back to the Lakeshore Motel, smoked a couple of dibs, had some Heineken, sat down and began to sign photographs. I came upon one photograph from the Wild Angels. So the dubs and the Heine kicked right in and I fell into the photograph. That's it. I know what to do for my next sex motorcycle and drugs movie. I was the tender age of 18 and something had happened to me when I had reached that age. I was in the last year of doing my A-levels and the world seemed like a pretty big place. There was a kind of excitement and trepidation about what was going to follow next. I was in the last year of doing my A-levels and would be heading on to university and I knew that my vocation in life or my passion in life was to pursue anything really related to the world of film. And I tipped up for college one day or school. Our sixth form college was at school, so I simply referred to it as school, even though it was technically college, I suppose. And my form tutor, who was also my media studies teacher, told me that that weekend he had picked up Easy Rider, a film that he had never seen before, and he'd watched it twice over the course of that weekend. Both times, he said, he had believed that the film was going to be a load of hippie nonsense. He even admitted that despite having never seen Easy Rider, 
he'd always considered something of a joke film. After all, it was, was it not just about two guys on motorbikes smoking weed? Just how cliched and boring could a film actually sound? Yet on each occasion, Easy Rider had managed to be something slightly more profound for him. That ending, in both incidences, had surprised and even shocked him. It clearly wasn't a film about two guys smoking weed and talking nonsense. There was actually genuine depth to the film, and it quickly found its way onto our curriculum. Impressionable as I was, I naturally ran out and bought the film on VHS, and for those who remember, the Cinema Club brand, which meant that the price point was a pocket-friendly $5.99. And from 1997 onwards, Easy Rider was pretty much what I watched on repeat. The film's reputation for many has always preceded it. My parents, who I will admit are two of the most boring people on earth, pretended they had seen the film. My mum even put on an annoying hippie impression which consisted of her pretending to smoke a joint and saying man in a strange voice. And for the record, the only joint she has ever gone near is a Sunday joint of roast beef. However, it was painfully clear that what they knew about Easy Rider wasn't from their own experiences, but what they thought they knew about the film. And to me, that says everything about its iconic cultural status. Easy Rider is a film people think that they know because of the time it came out, because it is so ingrained in the consciousness, not just of film fans, but of the wider culture in general. And it might sound slightly self-congratulatory of me to say that the 18-year-old me instantly got Easy Rider. I saw in it everything that my parents weren't. It was exciting, dangerous and subversive. Yet ultimately, it was the futility of it that most impressed me. It was self-aware enough to know that despite the best intentions, there really is no place in the world for likes of Wyatt and Billy. My media studies teacher was right. That ending never fails to shock you. And despite its abruptness, you realise that the film is preparing you for it throughout. I didn't necessarily want to head out on the highway and look for adventure. I wasn't going to suddenly up sticks and spend the next three years of my life trekking across the world. But Easy Rider did make me realise what I didn't want out of life. In short, I didn't want to be like my parents. It wasn't necessarily our middle class life that put me off, but it was how utterly dull and uninteresting I found them. I wanted to find things out, have hobbies, do things, experience life, and try to broaden my horizons in every way possible. And much of that is owed to the experience of watching Easy Rider. Going back to it 20 years after that first encounter, I was surprised how well the film, almost 50 years after its release, is still able to make a relevant point about contemporary culture even today. And it was a defining part of my journey from casual film fan to full-blown cinemaphile. My parents still haven't seen it, and I'm guessing there. But one thing's for sure, Easy Ride is a film that is more than just a catchy soundtrack and a few memorable scenes. Its significance to American film history and culture cannot be underestimated. And over the course of this episode, I will hope to demonstrate you as to why I think this is such an important film. We have endured a long night of the American spirit. But as our eyes catch the dimness of the first rays of dawn, let us not curse the remaining dark. Let us gather the light. 
Our destiny offers not the cup of despair, but the chalice of opportunity. So let us seize it, not in fear, but in gladness. And riders on the earth together, let us go forward, firm in our faith, steadfast in our purpose, cautious of the dangers, but sustained by our confidence in the will of God and the promise of man. I'm gonna step off the limb. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Whatever is decided, whatever the future holds for me, I hope that I shall have be able to put this most recent tragedy behind me and make some further contribution to our state and mankind, whether it be in public or private life. Thank you and good night. I feel no bad. I know no bad. Open them. I'm not against you, huh? Bitter? No. No. I have a question. Are you uh, guilty of any murders? Are you guilty of plotting any murders? I killed a chicken once. Any human felt... being? No, no. You're absolutely innocent of any conspiracy to uh, commit murder or telling anyone to commit murder or planning it? I'll plead guilty to the Indians. At the moment that we made the film, the whole country was on fire. It was riots in every, every city. All the young people were very, very upset about what was happening, as well they should have been. They should be today, but it's too fractured. What seemed to be going on was a tremendous pendulum swing. If you remember the late 60s, we had lots of powder on the face, lots of very bright yellowy white lighting, lots of puffy perfect hairdos and puffy perfect pink skirts. They were all being in a movie. They weren't being in life. There was nothing real about it. I've been working my way through the films of the American New Wave, and it's a cycle that started in the 60s and ended in the early 80s. It is almost universally agreed that Easy Rider is one of the most iconic films of this period. From its soundtrack, editing, direction, and exploration of countercultural ideas, it broke through its apparent otherness to become a huge hit with audiences, cementing its place in history. Seen within context, Easy Rider does not conform in any way to the rules of Hollywood flash-forwards, handheld aesthetics, lens flares, drug use. It owes more to European filmmaking sensibilities than it does to the country that it was being made in. It is essentially art house high concept. You could summarise its plot roughly as two men on get on motorbikes and go looking for America. Fast forward to the end of the new Hollywood cycle and you are left with high concept cinema. Only this is the age of Simpson and Bruckheimer, their vision for Hollywood was conformity, safe, crowd-pleasing eye candy made into easily digestible chunks of mass entertainment for the consumerist age of the post-baby boomer society. Like White and Billy, the carcass of New Hollywood was left at the side of the road. Conformity and safety had won, and it's as if the film was telling us all those years ago that this would be the case. Yet how did Easy Rider even come about in the first place? Well, to a degree, the answer lies within the safety of the studio system. Now imagine being an actor signed to a studio in those times. Yes, on the one hand, you would have varying to varying degrees actually made it. 
Yet for the more idealistic of performers, one could easily imagine that the system would be quite constraining and an entity that you would wish to break free from. The films you starred in would not necessarily be your choice. You would be expected to behave and conduct yourself in a very specific way. For the likes of Peter Fonda, himself the son of the icon Henry Fonda, the studio system was something he was desperate to break out of. Fonda was plagued by a sense of self-doubt. As a professional, he would always be seen as the son of an icon, given his position in Hollywood by the family name. Fonda's other curse was his looks. Blonde hair, blue-eyed, he was the all-American boy. He was, by looks alone, typecast. So what to do? We've gone through the whole 60s, and the 60s have been such a fascinating time, and there have been no movies made that had anything to do with our reality. I mean, the movie that was made the year that uh, we made Easy Rider was Doris Day, and Rock Hudson made Pillow Talk. The young kind of movies that were being made for kids were Beach Blanket Bingo, you know, with Frankie Avalon. They had very little to do with the reality of Haight-Ashbury or the reality of the hippie love ends. So much was happening at that moment. The visual arts were exploding. The music was exploding. All these creative things had happened, and basically, this was tapping into the end of it. Pop art had already happened. Rock and roll had already happened. The summer of love was over. Well, Fonda grew his hair, smoked some dope, and hooked up with one of the most iconic producer, director, and writers of one-man studios in the history of film, the legendary Roger Corman. Meanwhile, Fonda's friend Dennis Hopper was also working his way through Hollywood. Now it's easy to think of Hopper as a strung out, drug addled, drink sodden man-man, and indeed for periods of his life he was. Yet Hopper was, during his early career, slightly different. It was working alongside James Dean, the late actor encouraged him to pursue other activities and interests, leading Hopper to become an art collector, as well as an accomplished and lauded photographer, with his work regularly appearing in the likes of Vogue. Hopper was blacklisted by director Henry Hathaway for refusing to play a scene in a certain way during the film From Hell to Texas, and he was only able to get television jobs. Along with wife Brooke Haywood, the pair had become the hipster couple. Following Dean's advice, Hopper had pursued other interests and become successful doing it. He was still an outsider, angry and temperamental, and he would struggle to work his way back into Hollywood. Yet like Fonda, Hopper yearned for something more. He wanted to make the films he wanted to make, as opposed to the ones he was being told to make. During this time, Fonda and Corman had made two films together, The Wild Angels and The Trip. The Trip, directed by Corman in 1967, charts the evolutionary path that would lead to Easy Rider. Written by Jack Nicholson and starring Fonda as a preppy commercial director who decides to take some acids with some friends, one of which is Dennis Hopper. Fonda, along with drugger guide Bruce Durham, drops a couple of tabs and lets the fun begins. Well, what could possibly go wrong? I'm Peter Fonda. We've just finished making a movie dealing with the most talked about subject of the day, LSD. I honestly believe it will be today's most talked about motion picture. The name of the picture is the trip. Here goes.
gives off an orange cloud of light that just blows right out over the city. The Trip is as bad a film as you can possibly imagine. Despite some interesting visual flourishes, it is on the whole an insufferable experience that is the bedrock of every drug-inspired cliché in cinema. Yet what cannot be dismissed so easily is the film's success. Made on a budget of $100,000, it made a staggering $10 million back at the box office. Clearly there was something in it, it had struck a chord. And of course, Hopper, Fonda and Nicholson were all involved in its production. Whilst promoting the trip, Fonda, whilst under the influence of some beer and a joint, had an epiphany. He envisioned himself and other bikers as modern day cowboys. Thematically it made sense. Cowboys are iconic figures from American law. They occupy a place in popular culture we can associate with a very specific set of virtues and aspirations. Most importantly, a sense of freedom detached from the confines of mainstream society. Fonda pictured this incarnation of modern cowboys, bikers heading through America, pursuing the all-elusive American dream. First thing I thought of was these two guys who had done this journey across America and that they get bumped off by these guys who were poachers. I'd call Hopper and it was about 4.30 in the morning. He woke me up in the middle of the night and he said, what do you think of that idea? And I said, did they tell you they'd give you the money? And I said, you direct, I'll produce both write, and we'll both act, we can save some money. Dennis said, you want me to direct? I knew that Dennis would be the perfect person to direct this film. Other than Fonda and Hopper, the film's most important recruit was writer Terry Southern. Fonda met Southern whilst visiting his sister on the set of Barbarella, and Southern, who was the darling of the screenwriting world, was sold on the concept of Easy Rider and volunteered his services for free. Now one more common misconception about Easy Rider is that it was a largely improvised film, and certainly some scenes were, but for the most part Easy Rider was written by Southern who would sketch out scenes with actors recording them. Hopper maintained he would write every line of dialogue in the film, which I simply don't believe. The evidence clearly indicates the contrary. It seems Easy Rider would be a film about egos, and in that respect, it would appear Hopper's may well have the biggest. I was calling it The Loners, and uh, Terry gave us uh, Easy Rider. I wrote the screenplay. I wrote every word of it. There were several uh, drafts of the script written through uh, late 67, early 68. Terry felt in the early stages of the filming that Dennis was putting too much emphasis on man and, and being a bit too inarticulate for his own good. He was more of a mentor, but he was one of the writers of the film. Funding for the film would come courtesy of a Jack Nicholson context in the form of Bob Raffleson and Burt Schneider. Raffleson, Schneider and Nicholson had collaborated on Head, the film that would launch the monkeys and make Raffleson and Schneider rich, whose father Abe was a Columbia executive and his brother Harold, head of production. They liked the pitch for Easy Rider and the film was greenlit with a budget of $365,000. Columbia had zero experience of the youth market. Indeed, the studio mostly backing films from older, more safe directors. Some were hits and some were flops. Easy Rider was an inexpensive shot in the dark. Surely it could never be that much of a hit, they thought. So armed with their budget, producer Fonda and director Hopper and co-writer Southern got started getting a crew together. It was during this time that Fonda had made a slight error. The screenplay, which still hadn't been written at this stage, knew that it did have a scene in which Billy and White would head towards New Orleans for Mardi Gras. They would pick up two prostitutes played by Tony Basil and Karen Allen. 
Fonda had made a mistake. He had got the date of Mardi Gras wrong. It was happening right there and then. The result was an ad hoc crew of raising a few friends with 16mm cameras, including documentary filmmaker Les Blank, Karen Allen and Tony Basil, headed to Mardi Gras to film the acid sequence. I will discuss this more later, but it's worth noting that during Hopper during these moments, had already begun to act like something of a tyrant. Tensions were already beginning to show between him and Fonda. The first $40,000 was the first week in New Orleans. We didn't have a script. We were a producer that I am. I was a month late in my predictions of when Mardi Gras was, so we had to scramble very fast. I thought I had a month and a half. I had like a week to get a crew together. And uh, I got friends, I got five. I got five friends who had 16 millimeter cameras and, uh, and a couple of vans. And we all went down and shot. It wasn't an exercise other than in our patience with Dennis, who was crazed for the whole seven days down there. But I went down there uh, knowing that Orson Welles had failed to make a movie there, and a lot of people would fail, and I was determined that we were going to make this movie. It was our first morning, and Dennis was out in the parking lot talking to all of us yelling at the top of his lungs, this is my effing movie and nobody's gonna take my effing movie away from me repetitively for two and a half hours. Dennis was afraid that if we got too far away from him physically, that he would have an idea and we wouldn't be there to shoot the idea. So he would say, are you there? Are you there? Are you there? We'd say, yes, we're here. What do you want us to do? I don't know, but I'll think of it. Okay, okay. But we were very professional about it. We had no script, so we relied on the images that of Dennis had in his mind. He'd gone down and scouted the place, fortunately. After they returned, the script was finished, and they brought in Hungarian cinematographer Laszlo Kovacs, who would go on to film many of the films of the American New Wave and would become one of the most celebrated director of photographers of all time. Although Nicholson had put friends in touch with each other, he was still not yet cast in the film. Snyder tried to convince Hopper he would be perfect for the role of George, yet Hopper was not convinced. Nicholson was a New Yorker, George was from the South, yet Nicholson knew this role and was the heart and soul of the film. He threw himself into George and won Fonda and Hopper over, and of course the result is there to be seen on screen. Now with cast and crew complete, they headed out to make their road movie. Would they have been aware of what was about to happen? Well, I doubt it. I think Fonda and Hopper just simply wanted to make their film against the Hollywood system, and tempers would fray and egos would clash. Now, I would contest, obviously, that the result is a landmark in cultural history, which leads me to discuss why I sincerely think this is the case. I'm 
Marty Gray, and that's gonna be the weirdest man, you know? <laughs> you know what we ought to do, man? First thing, you know, go and get us a groovy dinner. Yeah, break out some of that cash, man. How much further we gotta go, man? I don't know. Huh? Not much further. <laughs> That's what he said this morning. I sometimes say it all day. <laughs> really? You say it all day, eh? <coughs> we don't have much longer. We'll be there soon. We gotta get the Mardi Gras, man. We go to Mardi Gras. Little heart is set on that. We got a week. That's a week away, man. It's a long way to Mardi Gras, baby. It won't take us a week to get to New Orleans. All right, Carl. Thanks a million. Say a little missus for me, will you? Yes, sir. All right. Here's the first of the day, fellas. To old D.H. Lawrence. Started off to Mardi Gras six or seven times. Never got further in the state line. Governor of Louisiana give me this. Madam Tinker Toys, House of Blue Lights, corner of Bourbon and Toulouse, New Orleans, Louisiana. Now this is supposed to be the finest whorehouse in the South. These ain't no pork chops. These are U.S. Prime. I'm tight, man. Oh, I'd like to get over there. <laughs> how long, uh, how long did you boys say it was gonna take you to get down there? Oh, about two or three days. Two or three days, that right. Boy, I sure wish I was going with you. <laughs> yeah? You got a helmet? Oh. Oh, I've got a helmet. <laughs> I got a beauty. My bag is sinking low, and I do believe it's time. Get back to Miss Fanny. You know she's the only one who sent me here with her. You will often hear Middle America described as the backbone of the country or its heart as if somehow it represents a kind of uncorruptible, ever-present beacon of what the country truly stands for. Yet in film, Middle America is often far removed from any kind of utopia, from shadow of a doubt to a simple plan, blue velvet, Rambo, deliverance and indeed many more. Middle America is a place of repressed sexual desires, double-crossing, intolerance, random violence, bigotry and terrifying secrets. I'm not sure to what degree I believe Middle America offers such dramatic potential for writers or directors, or that is more reflective of a kind of cosmopolitan snobism often displayed by city dwellers who mistake urban life as one of sophistication. Lord knows the amount of times people have made jokes about my being inbred when I divulge I was raised in the country. 
However, if we are, as American politicians often go to great lengths to attest, to believe that the heart of America lies away from its urban centres, then Easy Riders America paints a bleak, pessimistic view of the land of the free. The concept of movement across America is historically and culturally created with the pursuit of freedom, new beginning, wealth attainment, adventure and self-discovery. Often, however, the reality is far from this romanticised view. The infrastructure of America allowed the road movie to take place. In 1903, Horatio Nelson and driving partner Sewell Crocker and a dog they picked up on the way called Bud became the first humans and animals to cross America by car. It took 63 days to complete, and the purpose of the trip was firstly to settle a bet, and secondly Nelson believed, absurdly it seems, that the car was not some passing fad and would actually change the world. He was of course proved right, and with cars came the infrastructure, and only in America can something as dull as the road take on its own mythical status. The likes of Route 66 have inherited familiar cliches, freedom and the quest for oneself. I once worked with someone who claimed driving it had changed their life. I failed to spot what that actually was as they were still as annoying afterwards as they were before they went on their road trip. We are, at the beginning of Easy Rider, led to believe that Billy and White will be going on a similar kind of journey. Our first introduction to them could not be in greater contrast to the previous laws of Hollywood. Crime was most definitely not allowed to pay in film. Here, in an almost throwaway opening prologue, we see the pair profiting from a cocaine deal, with the proceeds of which are hidden in the petrol tanks of their bikes. The film could have easily not shown this sequence, and its inclusion is in itself noteworthy. The central protagonists are established as existing outside of the normal boundaries of society. You can make up the backstory simply by the images. These two motorbike riding hippies have got lucky, managed to score some drugs, and are going to spend their loot driving across America to Florida. Exact. Producer told us, you can't have heroes who smuggle hard narcotics. Can you do it with grass? And then I looked at Hopper, and I said, well, yeah, if we have three Peterbilt triple tractor trailers waiting for us. We couldn't really get that much marijuana on a motorcycle, you know, to make it interesting, you know, money-wise. I changed that to cocaine because heroin had just a bad connotation to it, and cocaine was the drug of kings, and nobody really knew what it was. I didn't really want to make it a drug you could identify. It was just a white powder. I wanted the moralists in the country to feel whatever was the worst drug for them, that was what this was, and that we would score this in a junkyard in Mexico, scoring junk in a junkyard. Harper loved that thought. He also promised he'd give me real coke. <laughs> it's a test. Oh man, I'll tell you, powdered sugar really hurts. Wyatt throws away his watch at the end of the opening sequence. It is a moment loaded with symbolism. He is rejecting even the fundamentals of conformity. Even time itself means nothing to him. And of course, the government that time has on all our lives is all too obvious. We may work the typical nine to five job. We get the same time train every day. We tune into specific programs at given times. The list is almost endless. White and Billy reject all that. They have no interest in living a life at the mercy of any other element other than their primal instinct to be free from society. Yet this is a very different America to the one they believe actually exists. Their journey is an inverse of the Western. It is an Eastern, so to speak. The Western marks a journey undertaking and expanding the borders and cultural identity of America. 
As people advanced, settlements grew, myths and law were forged. The West is loaded with imagery and connotation of the pursuit of personal freedom. Easy Ride inverts this. It's a journey into the country from west to east, and as Southern and Hopper are showing, this is not about expanding the frontiers of America, but exploring the social boundaries that now exist within it. Billy and Wyatt are named after Billy the Kid and Wyatt Earp, both outlaw and the law, yet their names are evocative of American mythology. The revisionist Western made me think about the genre with far more emphasis on the psychological makeup of the characters. The likes of John Ford created cinematic myths, and then deconstructed that mythology they had established. The Searchers holds a mirror up to the genre's worst prejudice through Ethan. He is a murderous bigot who fully intends to kill his niece for the crime of being culturally contaminated. Easy Rider is, as I see it, very much a continuation of the exploration of American society. The film's first half is most definitely not as pessimistic as its second. In the first instance, Billy and Wyatt come across a farm owner. Rather than being unwelcome and rude, the farmer allows them in to fix their bikes and invites them to dinner. In the context of the Western, these are the homesteaders. Wyatt comments on the virtue of their existence, living off the land, farming and settling it. When I was a young man, I was headed for California, but, uh, well, you know how it is. Well, you sure got a nice bread here. Yeah, I sure got a lot of them. My wife is Catholic, you know. <laughs> Honey, can we have some more coffee? No, I mean it. You've got a nice place. It's not every man that can live off the land, you know. Your own thing in your own time. You should be proud. Clearly, White is a bigger thinker than Billy. This may not be the life that he, in that moment, desires, but it is an existence that he can identify with and admire. After picking up a hitchhiker played by Luke Askew, the group drive to a commune the hitchhiker is trying to get to. It's here, arguably, Easy Rider has its most hippiest moments, and indeed, the politics of the film seem slightly blurred. The people living in the commune outwardly appear to be living off-grid, yet their existence is clearly one dominated by strict male patriarchy, as shown in the act that all women seem to be relegated to domestic tasks, and the total lack of actual ability to understand and cultivate the land they live on. We see them praying for their crops. Clearly the commune's location is hardly conducive to growing them in the first place. It's a load of spiritual garbage. Billy clearly views the commune as a chance to partake in some free love, despite Wyatt being slightly more understanding of the situation, even summarising they may make it. It is obvious though that the commune is doomed to fail. Here I believe Easy Rider is demonstrating a degree of awareness. By the late 1960s, America was entrenched in Vietnam, college campuses were in uprising and the Democratic Party had descended into infighting. Easy Rider reflects the death throes of 60s idealism. There is no utopia waiting at the end of the decade. The commune is representative of this. There is something vaguely pathetic about watching people think that it's actually kind of existence may have some form of future. Praying for crops to grow in clearly arid land is about as useful as hoping salt water will become drinkable merely by looking at it. Although Wyatt pontificates that they may make it, I'm pretty certain that this is character and not the screenplay talking, and given the film's 
final destination, I would venture Southern, Fonda and Hopper did not themselves envisage a bright future for this commune. Look at this, man. Seashell, man. Dig. <laughs> nothing but sand, man. Ain't gonna make it, man. Ain't gonna grow anything here. They're gonna make it. Dig. They're gonna make it. The heart of Easy Rider is found in George. After being arrested for parading without a permit, Wyatt and Billy are thrown in jail where they discover him drunk, sleeping off the night before successes. George seems to understand the world with far more insight than both Billy and Wyatt. As a civil rights lawyer, George has no doubt fought against injustices most of his life. He understands that American issues are not that Billy believes to be superficial, but something far deeper and potentially dangerous. George talks of beating, forced head shavings and worse. He represents something better than the environment in which he lives. On paper he has nothing in common with Billy and White. Yet for the first time in the film there is a real sense they have met someone with whom they actually have a genuine bond with. George decides to join them on the road towards New Orleans. Of course, for his reason wanting to is contentious. He knows a good brothel, Madame Tinker Toys, but he injects Easy Ride with a newfound vigour and some much needed humour, as well as fundamentally exploring its key themes. Oh, wow. What? What was that, man? What was? What the hell was that, man? Huh? No, man. Like, hey, man. Wow, I was watching this object, man. Like, like the satellite that we saw the other night, right? And like, it was just going right across the sky, man. And then, I mean, it just suddenly, yeah, uh, <laughs> it just changed direction and went uh, whizzing right off, man. <laughs> it flashed. You're stoned out of your mind, man. Oh yeah, man. Hey, like I'm stoned, you know, man. But like, you know, I saw a satellite. And it was going across the sky, and it flashed three times at me, and zigzagged and whizzed off, man. And I saw it. That was a UFO beaming back at you. Me and Eric Heisman was down in Mexico two weeks ago. We seen 40 of them flying in formation. They, 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 they have got bases all over the world now, you know. They've been coming here ever since 1946, when the scientists first started bouncing radar beams off of the moon. And they have been living and working among us in vast quantities ever since. The government knows all about them. What are you talking, man? Hmm. Well, you just seen one of them, didn't you? Hey, man, I saw something, man, but I didn't see it working here, you know what I mean? They are people just like us from within our own solar system, except that their society is more highly evolved. I mean, they don't have no wars. They got no monetary system. They don't have any leaders because, I mean, each man is a leader. I mean, each man, because of their technology, they are able to feed, clothe, house, and transport themselves equally and with no effort. The first campfire scene with the group is also quite markedly different from the ones that have gone before. Up until that scene with George, most of what Billy and Wyatt's exchanges are fairly serious in tones. In the part of Wyatt even, he's actually quite muted. 
Perhaps one of my minor irritations with Easy Rider is in fact the character of Wyatt. I believe that Fonda had fallen into the trap of believing that being muted and pensive is a form of dramatic realism. I would beg to differ. In this case, I can't help but finding it a tad jarring, almost if he's trying too hard to be too cool for school. That aside, however, the first camp scene with George, Billy and White brings some welcome comic relief. George talking about the Venetians is hilarious, and the take where Nicholson begins to laugh was actually more of an outtake than it was an actual take in the film, and it's clear watching it that everyone involved has enjoyed the consumption of narcotics. This first campfire scene is also a good example of how well the screenplay works. It's not just about the dialogue, it's just about the bond that you see develop between the characters and how you feel about them. You like George and we like having him around Billy and Wyatt. You are lulled into a sense that Easy Rider may have some light at the end of the tunnel. The next day, however, we witness the very people George fears will get their hands on Billy and Wyatt. Whilst visiting a diner, some of the locals berate Billy and Wyatt for their appearance. They are compared to women and despite clearly being the object of female desire, are quickly made to feel threatened and not welcomed by the locals. They are almost archetypal in their appearance of the stereotypical hippie. Their being mocked is not just personal in the context of the film, but it is also their kind in general. The film is painting in broad strokes in this regard. It's hardly subtle, but then again, Easy Rider isn't subtle at times, and it does have quite a directness in its approach, cutting through subtext at times to make its point. And as the locals sneer, the local girls take more of an interest in them, yet the visual difference between them is also apparent. Billy and Wyatt never mock anyone in the film. They do not seem to harbour prejudice. The difference between them and the men in the diner is, as George attests, much more than just superficiality. This is deep-rooted, institutionalised bigotry. So I arrive at this place in Morganza, Louisiana, this little coffee shop, which is about all there is there. I'd had this location scout go ahead, and he would find actors that might be suitable to be in the picture. And I kept telling him, don't go to, like, you know, little theater groups. I don't want little theater. I want real people, and I'll try to work with them. Tony had lined up 50 or 60 people. He had gone to the local little theater group and he'd gotten a group of actors together who had all dressed up and looked like they were ready to perform. And I went, oh, man, this is terrible. So we arrived before anybody else was there as we walked in. They were standing around the house. I can smell it. Can you smell them? They got some fancy bikes out there. That's some Yankee quills. Check the flag on that bike. Dennis says, those guys, we want them. I said, I want those guys. And he goes, you've got to be kidding. I can't ask those guys. They'll kill me. And I said, those are the guys I want for the movie. And I said, you see those little girls over there? Hot damn. <laughs> he said, oh, my, we're going to get in so much trouble here, we'll never leave this town. I said, everybody wants to be in the movies. So they did. They wanted to be in the movies. Well, oh, don't look too close there because the sheriff's right over there. I told them, there's nothing you can say that's too bad about us. Feel free to say anything you want about us because we raped and killed a young girl outside of town. Oh. So that freed them up to use all their bigotry and all their stuff and all their nastiness, which they wanted to use anyway. Looked like a bunch of refugees from a gorilla love in. A gorilla couldn't love that. <laughs> Nor could a mother. And especially hit pay dirt with Hayward Robillard Jr., the man in the cat hat. Oh, I think we ought to put him in a cage and charge a little admission to see him. They 
did not really like us. And conversely, the girls did like us. They resented the fact that the girls did like us. The man, the man is at the window. The man is at the window. The man is at the window. But I saw the faces. They loved it. They loved to hate, you know. And it was kind of scary, you know, because... But, you know, at the same time, what really toned down the, the real hatred, we are in a movie. What do you think we ought to do with them? I don't never know, but I don't think they'll make the parish line. You know, I'm not real hungry at the moment. I hate to say it, but I do believe that they would have enjoyed if Jack was real when they, you know, when the killing scene later on. Billy and White should represent and personify the ideal of the American way, they're being free in the truest sense. America is a country that we historically associate with being traversed. The open roads and the wide open countries are made for men to head out onto and discover their true self. Or so the theory goes, yet cinema reminds us of this fallacy. Freedom comes with caveats, and in Easy Rider, these are both superficial and ideological. Later, the conversation with George features the now iconic line, this used to be a hell of a good country. To what period in American history is referring to is not clearly defined. George, I would contest, is reacting to the socio-political climate in America of the 60s. His lamentation is also, em- is also symbolic of the end of American counterculture. You know, this used to be a hell of a good country. Man, everybody got chicken, that's what happened. Hey, we can't even get into like a second-rate hotel. I mean, a second-rate motel, you dig? Don't they think we're gonna cut their throat or something, man? Like, they're scared, man. Oh, they're not scared of you. They scared of what you represent to them. Amen. All we represent to them, man, is somebody who needs a haircut. Oh, no. What you represent to them is freedom. What the hell's wrong with freedom, man? That's what it's all about. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's what it's all about, all right. But talking about it and being it, that's two different things. I mean, it's real hard to be free when you are bought and sold in the marketplace. Of course, don't ever tell anybody that they're not free, because then they're going to get real busy killing and maiming to prove to you that they are. Oh, yeah, they're going to talk to you and talk to you and talk to you about individual freedom. But they see a free individual, it's going to scare them. No, well, don't make them running scared. No, it makes them dangerous. George notes that Billy and Wyatt represent freedom. This is in itself a threat to the status quo. The men in the diner represent conformity. America after World War II had its infamous baby boom. The result was a vast expansion into the suburbs. Television found its way into the house and the nuclear family was born. And also with it, a new form of social conservatism. I would contest that the American frontier spirit was replaced with a new kind of form of social acceptance. To live in within this circle was the most desirable goal a person could have. Pay your taxes, believe in God, solve your problems through personal wealth attainment. George, it seems, seems both sides. On the one hand, he's part of the establishment 
and on the other he's able to take a step back from it and see it for what it is. Billy and White have made their money, yet to a degree have utterly failed to understand its greater meaning. Despite them having a vast sum of cash in the petrol tank, at no point do they actually seem to need it. Have they, in a way, merely played the game themselves, become fixated with wealth attainment in lieu of the core beliefs of what they are actually looking for? Billy and White want freedom, yet seem unable to truly break free of the rigid structures of the modern world, i.e. money. Their goals are hedonistic, women, drugs and bikes, and I think Easy Rider's brilliance is to know the climate in which it is being made. It knows that America is deeply divided, and George pays the ultimate price for this. Any radical thinker in the 60s ultimately met with the same end. JFK, Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy, all were stopped by the assassin's bullet before their big ideas could come into fruition. George is beaten to death by people on another day he may have represented as clients. To, hit, to them, he is the ultimate turncoat. How dare he think differently? How dare he stand on the other side? This is America where the clear battle lines are drawn. You are either with us or against us. And tonally, Easy Rider changes completely. We arrive at a very different Mardi Gras to the one than we were expecting. This is industrial America of factories and mechanical noises on the soundtrack. Billy and Roy get to Madame Tinker Toys and it's far from the hedonistic moment of sexual gratification they were looking for. Wyatt sees his own death whilst reading a passage on the wall and along with two prostitutes, Mary and Karen, they all, the group drop acid. These scenes are deeply disturbing. Fonda was encouraged to talk about his mother's suicide at the behest of Hopper and as the drugs kick in, the monotony of the soundtrack takes over, and the group in the graveyard experience what can at best be described as a living nightmare. The communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Look I want you me. to be beautiful. I, I want you to be, be beautiful. No, listen to me. Listen to me. I want you to be beautiful. I want you to be beautiful. No, no, me. I know you. <laughs> Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour. I know it. I know you. I know you. I know you. Far from celebrating drug use, Easy Rider, like the trip before, shows the darker side of drugs. Indeed, it is more conservative point of view as far being far from liberating. Drugs actually come with a terrifying psychosis. Yet Mardi Gras carries such weight for Billy and Wyatt, and far from being what they were hoping for, it is a depressing, downbeat affair. It's also worth noting that when the, the crew did go down to New Orleans to film the scenes, the film stock became exposed to water in the ebullence, giving it this rather incredible washed-out look that you see in the final film. I found that after the death of George, the film's final third elevates Easy Rider to something far greater. The last campfire scene between Billy and White personifies the film's sense of loss. 
Wyatt says they blew it, and I've always read this as two ways. Firstly, and I believe he is referencing him and Billy, they have failed to realise what freedom is. They have simply fallen into the trap of themselves of wanting easy money and an easy life. Free love has yielded nothing. Drugs have revealed nothing but solitude, regret, and the one good person they met is now dead. The motorcycles had been stolen. This is why it's the only campfire you don't see a part of the motorcycles in. We'd shot the whole movie, and I said, but there's one more scene that we have to shoot. And he says, no, no, we've shot the movie, completed the movie. And I get him out in the middle of the night, and we're shooting this scene. And he said, well, I'm not saying all that crap. Dennis started out, I said, what do you want to say, man? Well, you know, I just want to say we blew it. Yeah, yeah, that's good. We have to say we blew it when we went for the big money, man, you know? We'll say we, we blew our hair. No, no, I just want to say we blew it. And this boiled into an argument, you know, Basically, with Dennis, it's high level, high decibel. And I said, well, then don't worry about it. You just say we blew it, and I'll say the rest. He said, well, how are you going to do that? I said, don't worry about it. <laughs> no, we've done it. We've done it. We're rich, Wyatt. <laughs> yeah, man. We blew it. I said, we'll shoot it two ways. First, we'll shoot it your way, then we'll shoot it my way. So we stepped out of the motorhome. I said, let's give each other a hug, and uh, they'll just think we're nutty actors having screamed themselves into method acting the scene out, then threw his arms around me, I love you, man, I mean, I love you, man. I said, I love you, man, and went down and shot the scene. I didn't see anything other than we blew it. Hey, we did it, man, we did it. We did it. <laughs> We're rich, man. We're retired in Florida now, mister. The whole idea of retirement, it absolutely is abhorrent to me. You know, we blew it. The idea that people think we can retire. We have so damn much work to do here. I hear people say, I'm going to retire. I want to say, fuck you. I want to get right in their face right away. How can you do that? When you see that tube going into the, the gas tank, I'm stuffing money into it. What's the symbol for you on that? Fucking the flag with money. Retirement. And that's what it's all about, man. I mean, like, you know. I mean, you go for the big money, man, and then you're free. You dig? <laughs> We blew it. Dennis has always felt that I should have said more. I wanted to be enigmatic about it, and I still today want to be enigmatic about it. Yet perhaps more generally, White is referring to America. With all the optimism of the Founding Fathers, this is a country rife with prejudice, fear and hatred. The next day, the journey continues until Billy and White are killed by some locals in a truck. What is so striking about the scene is how abrupt the shootings are. New Hollywood turned violence into a form of gratuitous death pornography. Its protagonists were gunned down in long slow motion blood squib fests. Here the shootings are simple and we barely have time to register them. It makes them all the more shocking. You like these guys and you want to see them have the chance to escape. You even want to know if they are definitely dead, but the film denies you this last goodbye. They are shot and the camera simply begins to drift up into the air. Easy Rider feels like a documentary in this respect. The ending just happens. These aren't characters from early on in the narrative coming back to haunt Billy and Wyatt. They are simply two random strangers who wanted to scare them and have ended up having to kill them. Another day and the film could have gone in another direction. It just so happened they were on the wrong stretch of road at the wrong time. And I know why my media studies teacher was so taken in by the film after I saw that. It draws you in and makes you want more. You want to see them get to Florida, but cruelly this is denied. It's a daring, pessimistic conclusion, 
perfectly in keeping with the time and culture of movies during this period. It is certainly not another Dr. Loodle, but it's something far more disturbing and ultimately rewarding. content that however that makes Easy Rider so interesting for me. It's the manner in which it is presented to us. Forgoing a traditional score, the film uses contemporary music to startling effect from Steppenwolf to Jimi Hendrix. The audio cues indicate the film's mood and ambience. And of course the use of popular music today is commonplace, yet Easy Rider is a trailblazer in this regard. You can see the film's audience through its soundtrack. These are the people we see in D.A. Pennebaker's Monterey Pop Festival or Woodstock, or even the Rolling Stones film Give Me Shelter at the Altamont Speedway. It's possibly easy now to dismiss Born to be Wild, it has entered our culture psyche so much, but in the context of the film it is still liberating hearing it blare out on the screen as the pair drive along the freeway. There's also the combination of Lalo Kovac's cinematography and Hopper's direction. Kovacs would shoot into the sun causing lens flares. We see it all the time now, yet at the time this was seen as being a mistake with the shards of light streaming into the image. And again, it's well worth cross-referencing Easy Rider's visual approach to the studio films of the time. Indeed, it feels, visually at least, it has more in common with the documentaries of Penner Bakers and Les Blanc and Clo. Laszlo Kovacs is the greatest telephoto operator I've ever seen. Our camera car was hysterical. What we would do is mount the camera either in a convertible or on the back of a station wagon. Soft tires, back seats out. Just some sandbags and an Aeroflex and, and Laszlo. moment when we're riding up, Dennis swings to his left and Lazo pulls out. And it's just like Dennis is pushing the frame right when you're watching it. It's a great shot. Lazo was just so hip that he saw Dennis swinging and started pulling back. And I did this very subconsciously. I wasn't designing this shot a night before and storyboarded. It comes out of an instinct, you know, and, and they responded. When I was swinging, my arm, he swings over to the other side. It was just a wonderful, almost like a musical ballet. The new Hollywood films up until the point were still nowhere near as experimental as Easy Rider, and Kovac and Hopper resist the urge to present America in a picture postcard way. Instead, prefer to almost fetishize the relationship between White and Billy in their bikes and the sheer joy of simply driving along mile and mile after of open road. 
I believe sometimes it takes outsiders to really show the country you live in in a unique way. And Kovac shows us America that we know to agree, but also through his eye, discover anew. It might not at times be pretty with its urban areas, but it feels honest in a way. And America, I always found, has incredible scenery, but sometimes its inner city areas do have a kind of stark banality about them. Kovac sees this and embraces it. It is America you might not want to see on film, but Easy Rider is not about making you feel safe, nor is it about film about hiding behind pretty aesthetics. At 31, Hopper was a first-time director, and in my opinion, does not overtly direct the film some first-time directors are often compelled to do. What we see is far from being a mess and is surprisingly coherent and ultimately a well-paced and structured film. Hopper most certainly breaks the rules of cinema at the time, yet he never veers into the realm of the overly ridiculous. Watching the trip scene in the graveyard is jarring for the very reason it seems so real. Hopper clearly was a method director and I can't help but admire that. Yes, it is cruel and exploitive in a way to make Fonda go so deep into his personal experiences. But with the exception of, say, Martin Sheen in Apocalypse Now, I've never seen anything quite like this on screen. And yet it seemed a very hopper thing to do. It's a film of no compromises. It might not be nice to see, but he won't let his actors stay in a safe place. So why let his audience? And with Easy Rider, Fonda and Hopper have given us a genre with which filmmakers can move outside of the comfort zone. The road movie is a place where the likes of Ridley Scott can drive Thelma and Louise off a cliff and still make it seem like an uplifting moment. And from Natural Born Killers to My Own Private Idaho, the road movie is a film about exploration from subjects to violence to sexuality. And Easy Rider sets so many of those on its path. Naysayers will say it hasn't aged well. I beg to differ. Its themes could not be more pertinent, and its daring nature cannot be more urgent. How many times do you go to the cinema to watch a nice, safe piece of Hollywood entertainment and leave with an overwhelming sense of how average and stale cinema can be? Easy Rider is the opposite of that. You don't know what's going to happen, where it's going, and where you are left is watching two corpses of its lead characters at the side of the road. It was a film made in the independent spirit, free from rules and conventions, and the result is a genre-defying and era-defying milestone in American cinema. And to think where the American new wave ends, with Hollywood in the 80s so sterile and multiplex culture on the up. Hollywood to a degree blew it, bloated budget, the synergy of merchandise, soundtracks, Happy Meals and the movie. Easy Rider sticks its fingers up to all that and makes you want to say for however fleeting, fuck it to the job and the mortgage and just get out there and live your life. And as far as I'm concerned, that can only be a good thing once in a while.